0: KYW Original Podcasts. Hey, everybody, this is Flashpoint host Cherry Gregg. Thanks so much for downloading the podcast. Would you do me a favor when you're done listening? Would you subscribe, rate, and review the podcast? We need your reviews to take us to the top. Thanks. Now let's get to it. This week, the focus is on the nearly 100 million
1: eligible voters who opted out in 2016. A little over 41% of the eligible voting population did not vote. Who are the non-voters? And why do they ignore the ballot?
2: Younger folks are saying, I don't see how this voting in this election is actually relevant to my life right now. The drive behind those disconnected from democracy
0: and how to get them off the bench, we dig in. Then in an interview her first here on Flashpoint, he was the first black district attorney in Pennsylvania until he did a bit for bribery. You know, I made some uh, bad decisions, and uh, I paid severely. Former Philly DA Seth Williams talks about what it's like to build a new life. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at donors1.org. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. The focus is non-voters. In 2016, nearly 100 million Americans eligible to vote opted out of democracy by deciding not to cast a ballot. Well, who are these non-voters and why do they choose to opt out?
2: Uh, my name is Alex and I'm from Philadelphia County. Yeah, I'm not voting. I'm because I just don't like any of the candidates that are presented to me or anything put forth. Candidates after candidates don't really represent my interests.
1: I'm
0: Melissa and i uh, Philadelphia County. It feels like sometimes the Democratic Party and the Republican Party are one and the same. And it's disenchanting and disheartening that like who we vote for, who gets the popular vote, isn't the person who's going to become the president. It doesn't feel like this is like an honest system. With me to discuss this Flashpoint is Yvette Alexander, Director of Learning and Impact with the Knight Foundation. Welcome to Flashpoint. You guys at the Knight Foundation released a report earlier this year that took a look at chronic non-voters. Before we dig into the report, please define that term.
1: For the, purpose of the purposes of the study, we defined the non-voter as someone who voted in one or fewer of the last six national elections. So maybe they came out to vote in Obama, for example, but they hadn't voted in a national election before or after that. Um, and all of these were eligible to vote, citizens who are eligible. Um, and this is the largest study of non-voters that we know of. We say 12,000 of them across the country representative of all types of demographics.
0: And it's called the 100 million project. I was like shocked to hear so many people do not vote.
1: Yeah, it's a huge number. Um, In the last presidential election, um, Trump versus Clinton, we saw that a little over 41% of the eligible voting population did not vote. So that number is fast approaching 100 million. So that's where we got that title.
0: Who are these people, first of all?
1: They do look like the American population. They come from, you know, all walks of life, all um, income levels, all education levels. But there are some differences when you when you contrast um, the kind of chronic non-voter with the very active habitual voter. So those um, most active voters tend to be more educated, college educated. They tend to be upper income and they tend to be wider because um, those things correlate in this country a lot of uh, education and income and race. And then so non-voters do tend to be um, like less of less educated, a little bit more lower income. And by virtue of that, they tend to be a higher percentage of minorities among them. And so what are the reasons why they say they don't vote? Well, there was a variety of reasons, but kind of the more common ones were they feel like their vote didn't matter, or they felt like somehow the system itself, um, the election system was somehow rigged against them, or not a fair system. So why participate if my vote is going to get discounted or something like that, which I think is very concerning. And a democracy where we rely on um, citizens to vote in our elected officials. The other reasons that we heard a lot were that people didn't, candidates didn't talk about the issues that mattered to them or they were turned off from politics in general. Some kind of the mudslinging behavior, the negativity of politics can turn a lot of people off to um, ingesting the information, first of all, and then I think eventually voting. We also learned about why people don't vote by asking them other types of questions and then contrasting that with we also surveyed people who were habitual voters, so very, very active voters. So we found um, big gaps between voters and non-voters on a few different things. One, on the perception of the legitimacy of, your, of our election system. So do you trust that the system of elections works in this country? So we have non-voters uh, often saying, no, I don't think that our system works well or that the, the, the results of the, of the election will be counted fairly and accurately. The ballots will be found, counted fairly and accurately. And we also um, saw a difference on information information. Uh, consumption. So um, non-voters tend to consume less political information overall. They tend to consume less news. Their media diets are a bit more weighted towards entertainment, whereas a lot of the active voters, um, I think sometimes by virtue of being college educated and things like that, are are consuming more news, more traditional media. Um, and so I think we have a lot to consider there as we you know, move into the future as information diets are changing, a little bit more weighted towards social media now. We see that a lot with non-voters. So we have to figure out how to get people the information in different ways.
0: How did that impact democracy when you have less than 60% of the electorate casting ballots?
1: It's a huge impact, particularly going back to your first question, that the non-voting population doesn't look exactly like the population who votes, who tends to vote in president. So it does have an impact. One of the kind of traditional thoughts is that if non-voters all showed up to the polls, there'd be an overwhelming, you know, landslide win for, for the left. And that we found that that wasn't exactly the case in our study. So we found that there would be room to gain on both the right and the left if everyone showed up to the polls.
0: The non-voters are not affiliated with one particular party then.
1: That's right. They do tend to be on the whole less partisan, uh, which is part of why they uh, might be turned off from some of the the political news and the political platforms that exist right now. So they tend to be not not very strongly party affiliated. They don't have a lot of party loyalty. Um, They perhaps have a few issues that they care about and are looking for those issues to pop up. And we also see that they tend to have a history of not voting. Their families didn't discuss much news together. And things like that also kind of influence whether someone turns up to the polls or not. So how do you influence these folks? Is it possible? That's the million dollar question, I think, is how to move the 100 million to the polls. And I don't think there's a silver bullet, one size fits all solution for sure. Um, When I look at the results of this survey, um, I think of two things. I think it, it sheds light on one, how to bolster confidence that our democracy works, the election system works. I think sometimes the dialogue that's out there um, intentionally or unintentionally throws doubt on whether or not one's vote will be counted. I think, um, you know, when we talk about things like there are term terminologies used on both the right and the left that sometimes indicate that the system is somehow broken, like people stealing your vote or um, voter fraud, things like that um, should cast doubt on on um, our election system in general. And so what can we do to assure people Um, that their votes are counted, be transparent about the process, particularly if the process is changing for this election because of COVID or or because things are moving um, to a a digital format or a different process. Secondly, informing people about the process and how it works. we saw young people struggle a lot with the voting process. They said, you know, I think the voting process of voting is hard for me. Unregistered people said that that was hard or they didn't know where to start. And then the third thing I would say is the information flow. So going to the polls and casting a ballot is kind of the end game, but that process starts with being understanding how politics in this country works, kind of having that foundation, as well as being informed on candidates and issues. And so I think we have a lot of gaps for particular communities, but also just as a nation, we have young people who are not consuming information in the same way as previous generations. And I think we need to be really aware and thoughtful of um, how do we get the information to the right people and not kind of have a one-size-fits-all uh, message that goes out.
0: Eva Alexander from the Knight Foundation, thank you so much for being on Flashpoint.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. I want
0: to bring in Bishop Dwayne Royster. He's the Interim Executive Director of Power. Welcome to Flashpoint.
2: Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to be able to be here with you. So
0: when you hear from non-voters, particularly people of color who say they don't like either candidate, they feel like They're left out. The system's not fair. Their vote doesn't count. How do you get people to engage in the process?
2: First, let me just say we recently just commissioned a poll ourselves that was particularly targeted towards African American voters between the ages of 18 and 35 here in the city of Philadelphia. And a few things that we learned from this poll was one, most of the messaging that's going out to these younger voters is totally irrelevant to them. They don't want to hear about the history, they don't want to hear about people getting dying and 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 and, and being bitten by dogs. For my generation, that moved us, right? That was that was a story. The younger folk are saying no, it's not relevant. I don't see how this voting in this election is actually relevant to my life right now. And so the messages that we have to convey to them are specifically showing the direct impact of their vote on the material condition of their life. And if we're not showing that, then they're probably not going to participate in the election. So actually, Power has been running ads um, and doing a lot of social media work and uh, phone banking work and texting work. We're trying to reach 180,000 Pennsylvanians um, this year. And we're now in these last few weeks having to pivot, especially as we're targeting uh, younger African-American voters uh, to really bring messages that show the direct impact of their vote on their lives.
0: Your job is to somehow draw a line from the ballot box to life, real life.
2: That's right. And we have to be able to show the direct impact. So voting in this election means what for me? It means this about criminal justice. It means this about my economic condition. It means this about my health care. It means this about, you know, the environment or whatever the issues that folk are are deeply interested in. They want to be able to see a direct impact. We're nonpartisan, so we're not out there telling people to vote for a certain candidate or, you know, a certain party. We're actually trying to tell people to vote your issues. So it it even takes it beyond the candidate. It takes it to the issues that are impacting their lives.
0: 41% of the electorate, nearing 100 million people don't vote. How do you specifically uh, activate these people And, and, and do you see it as an opportunity?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a great opportunity. Uh, One, to engage young people in the democratic process, right? We are the demos. We're the people that ultimately should be the center, the foci of uh, a democratic government institutions, democracy. And so if we're not participating, then there really isn't democracy. So we've got to participate. I think that's the main one first things. Um, The second thing is, is that we want to be able to show to young folk, they actually have power to make change. Now, one of the things that we've been working very hard on trying to help folk understand is that voting is one piece of the work. It is not the only work. And I think for a long time, the messaging was, well, you vote and your situation will get better. No, you got to vote and then hold the people you vote into office accountable for their work, which is a lot of what power does, right? We do a lot of Uh, grassroots organizing and advocacy around certain issues and so it's not just it's not good enough just to vote you got to vote and then get engaged and then we also have to help educate our younger voters that they are ultimately in charge and that they have a say in their collective destiny whether they're in north philly or west philly or south philly or or mount airy or west oak lane or east oak lane or wherever they actually have a say in how their community goes
0: A large segment of the African-American vote did not show up in 2016. And literally Donald Trump won Pennsylvania by 44,000 votes. It's estimated maybe 100,000 Black folk didn't show up in 2016?
2: Yeah, based on versus the 2012 and the uh, 2008 elections. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a real problem that we don't seem to care unless it's somebody that looks exactly like us. But those folks making those decisions, whether they look like us or not, need to be held accountable by us. And one of the ways that we're able to do that is by voting and by making sure that we are registered, making sure that we're casting our ballots, and then making sure we're following up on the back end uh, after folk get into office. Even before they get into office, we should be having a conversation with them. This is our agenda. How are you going to carry this out? Is
0: there any way we can shore up this system to, 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 to help and imp- you know make people feel like it's fair?
2: You know, unfortunately, the system as it stands right now will not change until we force it to change. And one of the ways to force it to change is to get out and vote. Um, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm notorious for saying to people that I think we're in an oligarchy and not in democracy, because I believe corporations and their lobbyists actually have more influence on political officials at every level of government, including the city, state and the federal government, because we're not engaging we're not putting out there our collective demands about what we want for our communities. Uh, they're throwing around PAC money and other things when people in the rural homes and the projects and you know, the, the housing authority properties in Philadelphia don't have money to throw around. But what we do have is people, right? And I, you know, the people power can actually trump financial power if it's organized and people are moving together and not getting bought off and not being pulled to the side and cutting deals you know, outside the community. But when we come together, when we have masses of people in uh, certain areas that are, you know, that are uh, registered voters that are saying to politicians, look, this is what we want. And by the way, we have more voters with us than your margin of victory in your last election. So you know, not necessarily saying to them, look, you know, we're going to vote you out, but saying that we have the ability to control your future. And that you need to, as, as a boss would say to an employee, this is, these are the job responsibilities. Either fee, feel fill the job responsibilities or find a new job.
0: And so as we wrap up, what can you say, Bishop Royster? You know, the charge has been, look, get five to 10 people within your circle, make sure that they're going to vote. What if you come across one of these non-voter people? What do you say to
2: them? We usually ask the question, what keeps you up at night? And then I want to be able to go from what keeps you up tonight to why your vote makes a difference in addressing that issue. That's what I want to do. That's what a conversation has to be. It's got to be a more realistic, real conversation, not telling people why they should care, but actually listening to them and helping them understand why their issue, their vote is related to the issue that they have at the moment.
0: And I tell you, uh, Bishop, I mean, this is a swing state. So this is one of those states where your vote really, really, really matters.
2: That's right. That's why I'm back here in Philly. (laughs) So I'm trying to make sure that we we take care of that. So yes, absolutely.
0: All right. Well, check them out. Powerinterfaith.org. All right. Thank you so much, Bishop Dwayne Boyster.
3: Thank you, Sherry. Appreciate you.
0: Next up, in an interview heard first on KYW News Radio, Philadelphia's former district attorney is off of house arrest after spending
3: three years in prison for bribery. I had, in some ways, a, a near death experience without dying, without having to suffer a traumatic injury. Seth Williams talks
0: about his public shaming and what it'll take to build a new life. We'll be right back. Hey, Flashpoint family, if you like what you hear, why don't you stick around and take a listen to some of our past episodes or our Flashpoint extras. One example is our exclusive interview with the one and only DJ Jazzy Jeff. He contracted COVID-19. He had some dark moments, but he survived. Take a listen to his journey. Another example is our Pat's newsmaker of the week, Andrew Wyatt. He's spokesman for actor and comedian Bill Cosby. He explains why they're petitioning the governor to hopefully get the cause out of jail early all of this and more please subscribe to the podcast and rate and review now back to the show This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. Our newsmaker of the week is Philadelphia's former district attorney, the first black person to fill such a role in Pennsylvania. But in 2017, he stole the headlines when he pleaded guilty to bribery. He's now a returning citizen after serving three years in prison. Seth Williams is now off of house arrest, and he spoke to KWW News Radio first this week. Seth, welcome to Flashpoint. First of all, how you doing?
3: Outstanding. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be home.
0: You you mentioned that you suffered a lot of loss over the past three years. What have you lost?
3: Well, you know, I lost my public office. I lost my reputation. I lost my pensions. I lost my military career. I lost my house. I lost my law license. I lost my, um, you know, liberty. I lost time that I'll never get back with my daughters and loved ones. That was very significant. You know, I made some uh, bad decisions, and uh, I paid severely.
0: You mentioned that there was like a transformational process that happened um, while you were away on what you call your sabbatical, Uh, and so during that time, you actually made some gains as
3: well. I lost so much, but in hindsight, gained so much more from the experience. I grew exponentially uh, spiritually and psychologically and emotionally. I learned so much about myself through so much time of introspection. And I learned that really, after having lost so much, I learned that when God is all you have, God is all you need. I'm so thankful now for just little things, things that in the past I just took for granted. So it's all in perspective. Um, I had in some ways a uh, almost a near-death experience without dying, and without having to suffer a traumatic injury to really take stock of life.
0: What did you learn about yourself, the most profound lesson you learned about yourself while you were there?
3: Well, a lot of it is through sobriety and just learning how to deal with my own emotions. Um, and in the past, as a result of uh, previous trauma, as a result of the trauma in some ways of uh, being the district attorney, I masked my emotions. And I tried to deal with them in unhealthy ways, like, uh, you know, abusing alcohol, unfortunately. And uh, now I am much more in tune with my, my feelings and recognize when you have those feelings to deal with them and to talk about them and as opposed to trying to run away from them or to mask them. Um, and so, you know, I can cry now at the drop of a hat things make me emotional and it's okay.
0: And when you think about the job of DA, because I don't think most people understand, why did you feel like you had to map
3: Well, I had to try to project strength. I had two blackberries and one of them went off every day with every homicide, the the gruesome details of everything that we consider to be the worst of the human experience. I was prepared, I believe, strategically and operationally to be in charge of the criminal justice system in Philadelphia to interact with uh, the police commissioner and the mayor and the governor and, the, and all the, the apparatus that goes along with dealing with people that have been uh, victimized and people whose family members had been murdered and trying to, in some ways, pass through to them, um, it takes a toll. And uh, I had to learn healthier ways to deal with that myself. Um, and so... You know, I spent time when I was away, I learned and I was a person that um, was called upon to help individuals that the professional staff thought were uh, at risk of attempting suicide. And I really learned that your friends, when they're in crisis, they don't need you to try to solve their problems, they just need you to listen. They need you to be present. And so I, I hope to be present much more.
0: Do you have anything to say to the public? Do you have something you want them to know?
3: I you know, was very thankful for the opportunity that the citizens of Philadelphia gave me. Um, and to those that I let down, and to those who I wronged or hurt, I uh, asked for their forgiveness. For the people that I helped, I wish I could have done more. Um, and uh, to those that supported me through thick and thin, I'm extremely grateful. And I just say that, you know, words I recognize are cheap and anybody can speak. And I just ask that for the remainder of my life, that I be judged on my actions and what I do uh, moving forward. And again, I can't change the past. Uh, I'm very proud of many of the things that I did and that people that work with me did. But I recognize that I let folks down. I accept responsibility for many of my own personal decisions that I know, um, and that I'm trying to be a better person and a more authentic person who I am, who I should have been.
0: As you move forward, um, you know, you you have a few jobs. Uh, Tell folks what you're doing.
3: Well, you know, most important job is to try to be a good father at this point, but I'm working for the Harrison Foundation, and uh, the Harrison Foundation, of course, was created to try to address Uh, poverty in Philadelphia, and um, I was working for a while at a large box home improvement store, (laughs) uh, working there from 7 p.m. until 5.30 a.m., and uh, I also, maybe in many ways, most importantly, I worked for the Philadelphia Anti-Drug, Anti-Violence Network that, you know, while I was a district attorney in Philadelphia, my father was a school teacher. He worked at a recreation center every night ran a day camp in the summer. And I know that he did much more than I'll ever do to prevent crime. And so at this point, you know, I would like to really be more involved with teaching and trying to, if I'm going to use my professional experience and my own personal life journey, I think uh, for me at this point, to help prevent crime and to reduce recidivism.
0: You're, you had, you're in the process, I would assume, of creating a new identity, so to speak. Who do you want to be? Seth and, and, and how do you move forward? Who do you want
3: to be now? I'm just trying to be a, a humble servant, I'm trying to be a good father. I'm trying to be a much more caring person and hopefully a person that not only knows, but will try to live out the teachings of Christ, you know, and how we're supposed to treat each other. And uh, those are the lessons that I learned while I was away that I tried to begin practicing daily Uh, and to recognize while I'll never be perfect, I can strive to be the best person just right now, this hour, Mm. you know, one day at a time.
0: Well, thank you so much, Seth Williams, for uh, sharing your story. uh, And I wish you much luck um, in this new life.
3: All right, well, thank you very much.
0: Next up, they're working to achieve economic equality. We don't have the proper funding. That we need. The CEO of the Urban League of Philadelphia talks about their big focus during the pandemic. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to subscribe to the Flashpoint podcast by downloading the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms. All you have to do is search Flashpoint. Now, we here at KYW, we are all about community and a Philadelphia organization known for its effort to break down systemic inequity is raising awareness about the challenges facing students and families during these unprecedented times. Let's welcome our Patriot Home Care maker, President and CEO of the Urban League of Philadelphia, Andrea Custis. Welcome to flashpoint. Thank you so much, Terry, for having me. So wonderful. I mean, you guys have been really, really busy during the pandemic. Folks who may have been under a rock, they don't understand what the Urban League does. Explain that. And then let's focus on what you've been working on during the pandemic.
4: We have some issues here that we've been working on. One is hunger. We have a, a national crisis and a city crisis on hunger. This summer, we had an opportunity to children, it was like over a half a million meals that we gave. The other issue that we're facing here, and everyone knows it, we don't have enough affordable housing in the city of Philadelphia. So right now there's a moratorium. But when that opens up, what I have a lot of concerns about is whether or not there is going to be, and I think it is a long line, on mortgage default and renter eviction. Education has continued to be an issue for us in the city of Philadelphia, because we don't have the proper funding that we need in order to educate our kids. So consequently, depending on your area code depends on the quality of your education. So I have continually gone to Harrisburg with other individuals as part of Pennsylvania campaign that we do. And we have been absolutely advocating for more funding. And then Another area that is near dear to us, and I'll just say, jobs, jobs, Mm. jobs. The unemployment rate among the African-American community compared to the state of Pennsylvania is like about four times what the unemployment rate is.
0: Wow. And so I know the Urban League works on economic issues uh, and inequities. And what has the pandemic sort of exposed in your mind? Because people thought everything was getting better. I mean, Trump would talk about the economy Everybody got a job, what was the reality and what has been the reality uh, in this pandemic?
4: This is the work that we have always worked on. All of a sudden what happened was the pandemic exposed all of these racial inequities. Why is it that African Americans are dying twice as likely as Caucasian individuals? And that's because we're in those frontline jobs. When you also look at it, can we please have family sustaining wages? We have people making $7.25, $8. How can you raise a family on that minimum wage? So it has absolutely brought that up when it comes to unemployment. Mm. And also, when you look at health care, I mean, we came into it, I agree, with some preconditions, right? We absolutely did. But on top of the economic conditions, your home, on top of being in those frontline jobs, that's what's caused the number of cases we have, also the number of deaths that we have, how to purchase their first home. We do first time home buying. The other piece that is really of concern is look to the left, look to the right when it comes to black owned small businesses. It's highly likely that they won't be there. So we have got to figure out how we support black businesses.
0: I know that there have been some successes because I feel like things could have been worse.
4: How do you kind of bring attention to this? In the Urban League of Philadelphia, we're advocating on the Hill. I stay very close to Harrisburg. I write op-eds. I've um, testified there. So we make sure that our voices are heard and that they hear it directly from us because we represent the community. Um, The other piece we do is work very closely with city council and the mayor's office to make sure... That all of the things that we know, all of the data that we see, that we're presenting that and advocating for the right things. Yeah.
0: And a really big part of all of this is who's in power. And we have a big decision that is going to be made on November 3rd. What have you guys been doing with regard to voter engagement, education uh, for this upcoming election? Because it's been all hands on deck, it seems, from
4: both sides. We are out in the community and we are doing registration in every area, West Philly, North Philly, South Philadelphia. And we know we have a limited time. We also have a program that we put out there that said reclaim your vote. And it's basically about taking this protest to the poll, taking the protest to the power of your voice. And that's working really well after October 19th is getting individuals to the poll. So we're collaborating with Lip. We're collaborating with the Black churches. We're collaborating with everybody so that nobody has to worry about how do I get to the poll. I just wanted to take a moment because it's like a dream come true for me when I look at this whole digital divide. Yeah. um, That it, it makes me so sad that the people who look like me, the students K through 12, did not have devices. They also did not have an internet connection. So I just want to applaud those individuals who we have advocated with the Comcast, working so closely with um, the philanthropic organizations, also working with the city, that we've come up with what I think is a program and a model that we can put in other cities. I think this PHL Connected yeah. is the solution to this digital divide. Look, I always say, if, if this pandemic, if there's any silver lining, would that be it? Yes, we have had this issue for a long time, this time is all the different players who needed to get together, got together and said, okay, what are we going to do about it? We're not gonna point fingers at the internet providers. We're not gonna point a finger at the mayor in terms of funding. We're not gonna look at philanthropy. We're not gonna look at you know other corporations. We're going to look together and say, how do we solve this? How do we make sure that the people who look like me that we put an even playing field here there for them. Definitely. So this, this is good stuff. I just want us to keep pushing. You know, I know that funding is there until for the next two years. So we're gonna make sure that every little child that needs access, every little child that needs a device, that they have it and they're able to learn. Think about the kids who didn't have it. How, how are they gonna learn when you're doing distance learning? So now we're giving them the tools and the technology to be able to do that. Give you a website.
0: org. Wonderful, Andrea Custis. Thank you so much for being on Flashpoint. Thank you so much. Patriot Home Care is here to help when their clients need them most. If you're a caregiver and feel uncertain about where you're working now, call Patriot today. Patriot Home Care is now paying up to $600 in hazard pay to its current and newly hired direct care workers, recognizing their hard work and caring for our consumers during these uncertain times. Hazard pay will be up to $600 per direct care worker. Visit PatriotHomeCare.org. That's PatriotHomeCare.org. Or call 1-877-535-5550. That's it for Flashpoint, since we always wrap it up with a quote. Here's one from political scientist Larry Sabato. Every election is determined by the people who show up. This show was produced by Ariane Fulter and meet your host, Cherry Gregg. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program, Oregon Donors Save Lives. Until next week, thanks for listening.